what we're going to be doing tonight is to, to begin a study in the Psalms. And I guess there's no better place to begin than in Psalm number one. Uh, but let's do just a little bit of an introduction on the Psalms before we go in there. I think most of this stuff I'm going to give you, you already know. But, but uh, uh, we know that most of the Psalms, were, who's the author of the Psalms? David? Who'd you say? He wrote some of them, yeah. David wrote 73 to be exact, and actually probably more than 73. There's 73 psalms uh, with his name on the psalms, but, but uh, they got, there's some interesting authors in here. I mean, Moses wrote one of the psalms. He wrote Psalm 90, and some people believe he wrote some of those other psalms in that, in that, uh, that section of the psalms. Uh, we'll talk about that later on if we ever get that far, but... but uh, uh, Solomon wrote two of the Psalms. Uh, one of the interesting authors of the Psalms is Korah, the sons of Korah. Not Korah. Korah wasn't writing any Psalms unless he was writing them down in hell because if you remember, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah up. And it was his sons, the sons of Korah, who later on, and most of his family was swallowed up too. So somehow these guys escaped God's judgment and uh, their descendants became authors of some of the greatest psalms. I mean, some of the, some of the best psalms there are are the, the, psalms, the psalms of the sons of Korah. So they wrote uh, 11 psalms. Uh, then uh, Asaph wrote 12. Heman wrote 1. Ethan wrote 1. Hezekiah wrote 10 of the psalms. And the rest of the 150 psalms, or the rest of the psalms, there's 150 of them, the rest of them, they call the orphan psalms because they, nobody knows exactly who the author is. Although I believe David wrote most of those psalms and most scholars, I'm not a scholar, but most scholars believe that too. Now, what are the psalms all about? When you think of the psalm, what do you think of? Most people, when they think of a psalm, they think of worship. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and I can, that's, there's, there's some merit in that because the word psalm means, uh, it means words that accompany a song. And the psalms were, the book of psalms was the hymn book for the temple before the temple was destroyed. And so uh, it was the worship book. It was like, you know, as, Baptist, I, as a Baptist, I grew up with a Baptist hymnal. So the, so the book of psalms was like their hymnal. And and uh, so uh, the, most of the psalms are worship psalms. I mean, and I don't even say most of them. The most frequent theme of the psalm, let me put it that way, is worship, the worship of God. The word hallelujah appears in the psalm uh, more often than any other word. Uh, it's the most frequent word used in the psalms. Uh, in, you go to like uh, Psalms 150, and it only has six verses, but the word hallelujah appears 13 times. Apparently, Nathan knew where we were heading because uh, he was singing that song hallelujah tonight. Uh, so, uh, right on cue. So, it is a book of worship. Uh, it's also a great book of encouragement. I mean, when I'm looking for encouragement, I don't know about you, but quite often when I'm looking for encouragement, I head to the Psalms and I read the Psalms. Although... Uh, most of them, you know, the guy's pretty happy when he's writing them. He's full of joy. Uh, 
uh, and, and they're great encouragement for followers of the Lord. But, but sometimes the psalmist writes about some of the deepest and darkest times of his life. You know, a time when he's been rejected or when he's depressed or when he's distressed. And so we're going to skip all those psalms, but, <laughs> but, uh, but they're there. Let me tell you, they're there. And, and it always seems when I'm really depressed, I'm looking for one to lift me up. And I found one where David was just as distressed or more distressed than I was. And maybe there's some comfort in that because you think nobody could be as distressed as you are. And then you pick up and there's David, the king of Israel, the psalmist of Israel, and he's more distressed than I am. And so, so all of that, we can relate to the, to the, to the psalmist of every one of these psalms because, because what these words are, they're real words from people living a real life, and people of God living a real life. I mean, I love, I'll tell you what, some of the psalms I love are the imprecatory psalms. Uh, I don't know if you know what those psalms are, but they're about, they're where the psalmist cries out for justice and he cries out for vengeance. You know what I mean? When you've been wrong, you want vengeance, and boy, it's good to be able to go in and read a psalm and, and hey, that guy feels the same way I feel right now. And so maybe that's okay. A lot of liberal scholars believe the imprecatory psalms don't belong in the Bible because they don't line up with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, you can be mad at somebody who's wronged you, and you can want vengeance on that person. You know, your first prayer is always, Lord, straighten them out, get them saved. But, hey, if they're not going to get saved, I want justice, and there's nothing wrong with wanting that. The same writers who wrote the Psalms serve the same God we serve, and like us, they were created in the image of God, and, and so God is just, and God seeks vengeance. That's where a lot of people go wrong. God is love, but that's, it's not the kind of love the liberals like to, liberal Christians like. To, I don't know if there's such a thing as a liberal Christian, you know, if you're liberal, you're probably not a Christian. But the, the kind of God that the liberals worship is only this God who just lets anybody do what they want and loves them in spite of that. And they can harm other people, and that's okay. You've got to forgive them and go on. No, God seeks justice, and God seeks vengeance. He also seeks forgiveness. There is that other side of the coin. And he also does want us to pray for those who persecute us, uh, to bless our enemies. He wants us to do that. So, so uh, anyway, it, it, that's what's cool to me. I mean, you, you got people that write the Psalms that are dealing with real issues, the real issues of life, and that encourages me that, that they react in a, maybe the same way that I react. And maybe it's not so bad that I react that way. Now, I don't think they're throwing things and doing some <laughs> things I might do, but, but uh, I actually don't throw things. I'm not that bad. I, my worst... I don't know why it's in traffic. I think you ought to write a Psalms on traffic or something. <laughs> but I don't know why it's in traffic that all of a sudden I become a different person. I'm like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, it's just like I go to war when I get in the car. You know, and everywhere else I'm all right. I'm all right at home. I'm all right at church, everywhere else. But some, for some reason that car is bad. And being in that car is a bad thing. You know, I, not only are you encouraged by the psalm, you know, and, and, uh, you, you can relate to the psalmist. I believe when we read the psalms, we actually feel the heartbeat of the psalmist. I mean, and in, 
not only did we hear the heartbeat of the psalmist, in some of the songs we actually hear the heartbeat of God. And, it's, and especially the heartbeat of Jesus Christ, the God who relates to human beings. I mean, I love to read the gospel accounts about the Easter story and the crucifixion. But in those accounts, you don't hear what God is thinking when all of that's going on. But you go to Psalms 22, and you actually hear the heartbeat of God. You actually hear what he's thinking when he's hanging there on the cross for our sins. And you don't get that anywhere else other than in the Psalms. And so there's a lot of places in the Psalms. And I think you, that was one of the things that I really liked about the minor prophets. We kind of heard the heartbeat of God and what he felt about things, the way he was reacting to things and how he was hurt over the way things were going in the world and the way they were going in Israel. But, but the Psalms, you really do. You hear the heartbeat of the psalmist and you, uh, you hear the heartbeat of God. So this is a really blessing to study the Psalms. And I really think that I'm guilty of this. I don't know if you are, but I think as a church we're guilty of kind of making a light of the Psalms and kind of just reading over them without stopping and meditating on the Psalm. I mean, that's why you see that word Selah over and over and over again in the Psalm. It, it means to meditate, to stop and think about what is being said here and to meditate on the Lord and what the Lord is doing. And so uh, I, really, I really think that uh, uh, doing a, a study on the Psalms is worthwhile. And doing a study on any book of the Bible is worthwhile, but, but I think especially at times to look at the Psalms is a really good thing and to look at them and really think about what's being said. And that's what we'll be doing as we try to go through is we won't try to analyze every uh, uh, method used by the psalmist. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are used, inclusios and things like that, you know, that, that there's, there's actually rhymes in these psalms and they use, there's acrostics in the psalms. That's not going to be our purpose. Our purpose is going to try to be able to, to, to glean maybe some encouragement and, and learn some lessons from what the psalmist has to say. Well, what we'll do tonight, we will look at the very first psalm and as an introductory, another introductory matter, I don't believe that there's a single verse that was, has not been arranged, the order of it has not, that has not been arranged by God. God has arranged the order of all of the chapters, all of the books, and all of uh, uh, the verses. And so I believe that chapter 1 is where it is, for a purpose. I believe the Psalms are where they're at for a purpose. The Psalms are where? They're in the very middle of the Bible. So here you are and you're studying Job and you're studying Revelation and you're studying all these, the minor prophets and, and all of this kind of stuff. And right in the middle you get this little oasis, the spiritual oasis, the, the book of Psalms right in the middle. And actually, the middle psalm is Psalm 119. The very middle of your Bible is Psalm 119. If you number the words and you go right to the middle, you would hit right at Psalm 119. What is Psalm 119 all about? It's about the value of meditating on the Word. And so it's kind of like this little oasis given to the pilgrim on his journey, his journey through the Word and his journey through the world. And so it's, the psalms are just a, a refresher you know, you kind of right in the middle of the Bible, you get this great uh, refresher. Uh, 
And then we, we come to Psalm number one, and I don't believe, again, as I said, I don't believe, I believe it's the first Psalm for a reason. Now, what, what usually comes at the first of a book? An introduction. And so, more than likely, I would have to say, I would have to look at Psalm number one as maybe an introduction to the rest of the Psalms, and I think it is. I think it's an introduction to, to what a godly man or a godly woman should look like. And if you go to Psalm 2, which we looked at Sunday, we won't look at Psalm 2. But if you go to Psalm 2, what is it all about? Psalm 2 is all about an ungodly person. It gives you an introduction to what an ungodly person is all about, what the wicked are all about. I mean, just, just look at a little bit of Psalms 2. You know, why do the nations rage and they plot a vain thing? In other words, they're antichrist. They're against God. The king set themselves against the Lord and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, so the, the Psalm 2 is this introduction to the wicked. Psalm 1, which is what the Psalms are really about, are about the godly, about their God and about godly people. So uh, uh, that's what we would expect to see as we come to Psalms number 1. If we see a description of the wicked in Psalm 2, then we're going to see a description of the godly in uh, Psalm number one. So let's go to Psalm number one and let's read what it has to say there. It says, blessed. Well, you could just stop right there. I, know, I don't know about you, but if I want anything in this world, I want to be blessed. I want to be happy. People say, well, as Christian, you don't have to be, want to be happy. Yeah, we want to be happy. Our, we're going to be happy forever when we, when we make it to heaven. Our happiness is, is a permanent thing once we leave this earth. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So what the psalmist does here in verse number one, he describes the godly, by say, telling us the things that the godly don't do. Those are the things that the godly don't do. Not because we don't not do them because we're under law. We don't do them because we've been regenerated by God. We are different people. We have the spirit of God in us. And because God has saved us, we love God. And so we don't do these things. And, and when I see people who call themselves Christians even myself included, doing these things, I know it's wrong. And I know it must hurt God because this is the description of the things we should not do. And there's three things that he gives us right here. We don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We don't stand in the path of sinners. And we don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, what's he mean by all of that? We don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We don't, we don't get our wisdom from this world. That's what he means by that. We seek God first before we do anything. I mean, I believe and you believe that Jesus, as Isaiah said, is wonderful counselor, everlasting father, almighty God. We believe that. Why would we go to anybody else in this world for wisdom, any counselor in this world for wisdom before we first went to God. And I got to believe 
that God's there waiting to solve our problems in his manner, in his fashion, if we're willing to give those things to the Lord. And we also believe, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that we believe that uh, in Christ are hidden all treasures, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and so we want knowledge. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we get that from God. We don't get that from man. And, and, and one of the sad things, saddest things that I see as a pastor and I've seen over the years is there's not many Christians who really believe that. I mean, when I, I see people all the time and they're having marital problems and instead of running to the Lord and saying, Lord, okay, we want to fix our marriage, you tell us what to do and we're going to do it. They go somewhere else because they don't want to hear what the Lord's got to say. They don't want to do things this way. And so instead of going to the Lord and letting the Lord fix their marriage, they go to a marriage counselor. Well, marriage counselors in and of themselves aren't bad. I would never go to a secular marriage counselor. As a Christian, I think that's almost... It's almost sin to do that. I mean, hopefully you go to a Christian counselor and that Christian counselor can lead you into the word to where you can find what God wants you to do. But we, we, when, when we have physical problems, we immediately run to the doctor. Hey, doctors aren't bad. I'm not saying that doctors are bad. But before we go to the doctor or while we're going to the doctor, maybe we need to set our face towards the Lord and, and, and ask the Lord what he wants us to do. And I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I guess because I can't stand going to the doctor, my first thing is always, Lord, fix me, please. He doesn't always do that. Sometimes you do have to go to the doctor. Sometimes you have to go to the hospital. Sometimes you have to go through all sorts of things. And, and that's, more, that's God's will more than likely. But, the, but, that, but going to the doctor is the second thing we do, not the first thing we do. And... Uh, uh, you know, Paul addresses this issue over, maybe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he talks about, hey, what are you doing? You believers, you're taking your matters to court and suing one another instead of, instead of taking them before the Lord. I mean, don't you know that you're going to judge angels one day, Paul says? I mean, so, so I don't think we should ever sue a fellow believer. We should never have to go to a lawyer to, to, to settle an issue. We should always be able to settle it, settle it among ourselves. Now, when you're dealing with unbelievers, you might have to get a lawyer. But even then, before that happens, the first thing you want to do is try to get some help from the Lord. Then to look at the second thing that we don't do. He says we don't stand in the path of the wicked. That simply means we don't go where the wicked go. Hey, if you're going where the wicked go, even though you might not do the wicked things, you're going to eventually end up doing the wicked things. If you're in their path, you're going to, you're going to end up in trouble. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way, a path that seems right to man, but the end of that path is death. We don't want to be on that pathway. We don't want to be on the road to death. We want to be on the road to eternal life. And so we don't do what they do. Yes, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And sometimes I, I think we do have to cross paths with the 
but the wicked. But we don't follow them along their way uh, on the way to death. And if we do, we're going to be the most miserable of all people if we're truly born again. I, th this third one really is convicting right here. We don't sit in the seat of the scornful. What's a scornful person? In this context, it's someone who scorns God, who scorns the gospel, who scorns, really, let me just name it, Jesus Christ, and who scorns this word, who doesn't believe this word. And what does it mean to sit with them? It means we give in to them. We're, we are in agreement with them. They reject God. They reject the word. They reject Jesus Christ. They curse the name of Jesus Christ. They deny the truth of this word. And then we sit with them. And, and we call ourselves the church, and yet we're sitting in the seat of the scornful, right there with them. We just squeeze right in there with them. We talked about this Sunday. I mean, the way the church has compromised itself on this issue of evolution and, and, and how we just have embraced evolution as, as, the, as the way this universe came into existence instead of believing God's word. And when we do that, what we're doing, we're scorning the word. We're scorning God's truth. We're scorning, I mean, reality, in my opinion. And, and when we do that, we're sitting in the seat of the scornful. I mean, when we look in the Old Testament, we see sins that are named there that are, that are uh, punishable by death. The same God of the New Testament is the one who made those sins an abomination punishable by death. And if they're an abomination to him back in the Old Testament, I can tell you they're an abomination to him in the 21st century. And when we embrace those sins as being okay with God, we're sitting, we're scorning his word, we're scorning what he says about what sin is. When we, indoct, when we adopt universalism, we're scorning the word of God, we're scorning God. We're really scorning the cross. Because like I said Sunday, we're saying, you know, we're saying, hey, you didn't need to die, nice thing you did, but you didn't have to. Everybody's going to go to heaven anyway. So that's sitting in the seat of the scornful. Here's where we got to be really careful. When I sit in a movie theater or in my armchair at home and I listen to the name of Jesus Christ being blasphemed, and I see sin being glorified. Now, I've got to question myself. Am I sitting in the seat of the scornful? Those that scorn, I mean, Hollywood scorns the Lord. And so it's really, you've got to really filter your mind out in order to watch anything anymore. There's so, many, so few things you can watch that, that aren't antichrist. And I think, I think it's on us to, to not sit in that seat to find another program or find something else to do when, when, it's, when it's that bad. Now, he's told us what we don't do. Now let's look at the things we do do if we're children of God. Look at verse number two. But his delight, a godly man's delight, or a godly woman's delight, is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And in his law, in his word, he meditates day and night. You know, for the 
for the Jew at this point, the Torah was the word, and that's why it says the law. But he's speaking of the word of God. And really the law is part of the word of God. But if I'm a godly person, I delight myself in the law of the Lord. And I meditate on that law day and night. I've got to tell you, since August the 23rd, 1989, I have made it a practice. It's not a practice that comes naturally. But if I love the word and I have to have the word. I can't get through many days without the word, if any days without the word. And I meditate on the word day and night. Now, what does he mean to meditate on the word day and night? It means it's part of your thought life. I mean, if you're studying the word, it becomes God seals that word in your heart and in your soul. And you can take on the mind of Christ. And so it permeate, permeates your thought life. I mean, go back to my talking about traffic. I mean, I can't even get upset in traffic and say, call some guy an idiot and not the word come up to me, beware him who calls somebody Raka is in danger of hellfire. You know, I mean, boom, well, get that out of here. But I've read that and God has implanted that in my soul and I can't escape it. So I'm meditating in that sense on the word day and night. And, and, and that's what it means. It doesn't mean you run around with the Bible and you, like the Jews do and you bob your head and you read and you wear these things on your ears and do that kind of stuff. It's in your mind. It's part of who you are. And you love the Word. And when you start drifting away and you start getting bitter and angry and, and you got a lot of fears and you got a lot of doubts, it's probably because you're not in the Word. You know, because for a Christian, I mean, we want to be in the word i mean we delight in the word we find joy in the word blessed is the man who doesn't do these things and delights himself in the law of the lord and on the law he meditates day and night and when that and when we meditate on the word day and night let me tell you what there are great rewards great rewards because look at verse number three he'll be like a tree an oak tree, a big old giant oak tree. I mean, I, those, I, some of y'all have been out to my house, but the oak trees in my yard are spectacular. That whole neighborhood, they're spectacular. And they're only about 25 years old, but they're, they're 25, 30 years old, but they're just, they've, they've been given room to, room to grow, and they're planted by these, in Louisiana, where you get lots of rain, and, and uh, I mean, you just watch these magnificent trees, and man, you, Forget bringing those trees down. You better have a lot of money because they, they're, they, they, it takes two or three trucks just to unload the debris out of there once they cut them down and 15 guys to cut them up because those trees are so majestic because they're planted in a place that has lots of water. And, and so when we plant ourselves in the word of God and in, we're planting ourselves in Christ and so we're planted by rivers of water, living waters, you can't, you won't have the life of Christ if you don't plant yourself in the word. I mean, I mean, that's how you feed the new nature, the new man, the new woman. You feed that nature with the word. And so, you, so to be full of the spirit, you have to be in the word. You have to meditate on the word day and night. That means you live by the word. You live in, in cognizant of the, of the word. And, and uh, when we do that, 
Any person that does that, that's a Christian, brings forth fruit. Look at this. In his season. Now, I like the part in his or her season because I want fruit right away. We printed a little lemon tree, and it's about this tall right here, and I'm ready for some lemons. It's going to be a while before we get any lemons. I've got to wait for the season to come. And then that tree's not going to have enough and many lemons on it, if any. And I've got to wait a few years for some more seasons to come. And that's the way it is with a born-again believer. I mean, we, we plant ourselves in the Lord, and we meditate on the Word day and night. And one day, if we're doing that, we're going to reap fruit, but it will be in His season. It's going to take time, and none of us want to wait. But in the meantime, look at this. Look at what he says next. Whose leave also shall not wither. You know what Christians are? They're evergreens. They ev they're evergreens. They, they, no matter how dark it gets in this world or how cold the winter, they still have life in them. They still have joy in them. They still have peace in them. They're not bitter. They're not brittle. They don't get old. I mean, people call me old now. I, I look in the mirror and I say, who's that guy? But I, I mean, I, I'm, I feel young. I feel as young as I did, did when I was 20. I'm more mature now. Well, Brendan's going to argue that. <laughs> okay, we won't go there. I'll never be mature because I do feel young. And, and, and I, when you're in Christ and you're meditating on the word, you're full of hope. You, you're, full of, you're full of, you know you've got a grand future. And there's just always hope no matter what situation you're in. And so you don't grow old. And you know that God's, even though in tough times, God's mercies are new every morning. And, and look at this. Whatever we do, we shall prosper. In whatever we do, we shall prosper. Now, here's the catch to that. Prosperity is not health, wealth always. There's some of that, but, but uh, it's not about that. It's about spiritual prosperity. It's, it's about bearing fruit. But again, you got to put the, the catch there, and that is that, that it's gonna be, you're going to prosper in your season. There's going to be a season. So if you're in a season right now and, and, and you're not prospering, then there's only one of two reasons. You've, you're not planted by those living waters. You're not meditating on the word day and night. There's a lot of Christians who have planted themselves in this world and, 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 and they're drying up and they're dying instead of prospering. And, 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 uh, uh, if, if we're not prospering and we are planted in the word, then the only reason we're not prospering is our time hadn't come yet. Our season hadn't come yet, and it's coming, so give it time. I mean, if we're planted close to Christ, we can't help but bear fruit in our season. But that's not so with the ungodly. Look at verse number four. The ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow is what he's saying right there. They're like worthless weeds with bristles and thorns and uh, they're doing nothing but taking up space 
And boy, you talk about how these things balance or match up with each other. Wait till we get to Revelation chapter 14 on Sunday and what they're, they're about to be removed. They're about to be taken. They're not going to be taking up space any longer. Uh, their end is, is near. And, and we hope they all get saved so they don't face what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 14. Therefore, verse number five, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. In other words, they're going to they're going to they're going to they're going to be knocked down in the judgments. What he's saying there. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. When we're standing before the Lord and you're looking at back to Revelation again and you see all those pictures of the church before the throne singing praises. We saw the 144,000 last week singing praises to the Lord and all these great scenes in heaven and all this joy and all this happiness and all this peace. They're not going to be there. They're not going to be in the congregation of the righteous. They're going to be gone. And I got to tell you, one of the great things about the coming millennium and about eternity is that the wicked are going to be out of here. They're going to be gone. Hopefully they all get saved. But, but if they get saved, they won't be wicked anymore. But if they want to continue down their wicked path, they won't be dragging us down with them. They're going to, they're, they want to, they want to, they want to turn everything into hell. They're going to get to live in hell. And so, uh, and boy, we're going to see in chapter 14, I'll keep going back there. In chapter 14 of Revelation, it's not going to be a pretty place. So we don't want to see anybody go there. But, but uh, everybody will be made right. Everybody will obey the Lord in the millennial. If you're not going to obey the Lord, you won't be here long. For the Lord, I love this verse right here. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly he doesn't know and they shall perish that word know that you see right there is means a lot more than just knowledge it means he knows us in a relationship that means he knows our way he knows your every move he knows your thoughts before you think your thoughts and because he knows our way he directs our way. He empowers our way. He protects us along the way. And I think the most important thing, he's with us on our way. But the way of the ungodly, hey, he doesn't know their way. In other words, he lets them, gives them the freedom that they want. They want total freedom from God, and so they go the way of the world and the way of the wicked, and the way of the world and the way of the wicked is death, eternal death at some point, everlasting punishment, everlasting judgment. And so the ungodly shall perish. But as for me and you, go back to that word blessed, blessed. Oh, how happy is the man or woman who walks in the way of the Lord. That's, that's what it's all about. If the Lord knows you and you know the Lord, happiness is on its way if you don't have it right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for just, Father, the thought of you knowing our thoughts, the thought of you watching over everything we do. Lord, you give us our freedom, but we give it back to you because we, Lord, you're omniscient. You know everything. You're omnipresent. You're with us all the time. Lord, you're omnipotent. You have all power. And so how foolish it would be for us to try to live our own lives without your counsel, without your power, without your wisdom, without your grace. So, Lord, as we have meditated on this psalm, Lord, help us to be the kind of people who who plant ourselves in your word and meditate on your word so that we do bear fruit, Lord, in these last days before you come back. Spiritual fruit, Lord, and maybe even help some people that are on that wicked way get on your way. Father, we just ask for that kind of grace and that kind of power. We just thank you for your, your goodness to us. I thank you in Christ's name.